we have a wonderful day. We already have a few questions already set up. If you have questions, please feel free to send, send them to me. We're going to go back to some of the questions we had from the marriage conference. We're also going to talk a little bit about singles, those who are looking to get married. And this is obviously Father's Day. I don't give my back to people here. This is also Father's Day. And I think it would be very appropriate to start with a few questions we had for fathers. One of them reads... How do I encourage my husband to lead Bible studies in the home or with our kids? Or on this Father's Day, what is a practical strategy do you use or recommend to lead your families for Christ? Who would like to tackle that one? I'll, just, I'll get started. Um, first of all, by just saying sometimes dads feel a lot of pressure in preparing for family worship in the sense that we sit under such great teaching. And it's like, oh, now I'm supposed to, like, every night or every morning or whatever it might be. And um, think in terms of what Harry says about porch time. It's just being in the Word, okay? So I want to just say to you dads, if you put yourself under pressure to perform up to a certain expectation as far as preaching and teaching and having all your notes organized and things like that perfectly. Not that you don't come prepared. But my point is you're going to shoot yourself in the foot to begin with. And you're like, well, I can't ever do that, so I'm not going to try. And we all do that in different areas of life, right? The question is faithfulness. And if you go back and look at the emphasis throughout church history, family worship was a priority uh, as far as the dad functioning as a priest on behalf of his family. And... Uh, what that responsibility entailed was bringing the family not only to the word, but to worship. And so reading the word and responding in worship is what the main focus is that you wanted. One of the things I would say, it's, it's easier when they're younger, right? Uh, it might be when you pr prepare them to go to bed and you sit down and, and read the word. It might be after the dinner table. You spend time praying with your kids as you tuck them in. There's, it's a little bit more, even though it's crazy when they're young, right? But it's a little bit more structured. As they get older and they become more independent and their calendars become your calendars, you have to start, uh, you realize you can kind of get off track with doing family worship because you don't have everybody together, maybe always at the same time. So what you need to do is make a plan that fits your family and just be faithful, be consistent in that and taking them to the word. I think the other thing is if your own time in the word and time with the Lord is not genuine and vibrant, then there's nothing you're sharing out of with your family. And what your family pri primarily needs to understand is the truth of Scripture, but also the truth that's being applied in your own life. So when you speak to them, it's like, this is what I'm learning. This is what I know to be true about God. They need to see a authenticity, not just a formality in your approach to family worship. And um, that means, Dad, sometimes you just need to be transparent. This is an area I'm struggling in. This is an area we as a family need to trust the Lord to provide in. And invite your wife and your kids into the reality of life as you trust the Lord. And that's how they're going to learn that a walk with Christ is a living walk with Christ, not just a formal exercise. Um, so those are just a few thoughts to get us started. You guys are welcome to. So First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 is a little kind of an outline if you're a dad. And part of your question was, what do we do if dad's not doing it? But if dad is doing it, what should he do? It gives, Paul gives 
three verbs, three priorities for those who would seek to influence those in their sphere of their community. Number one, call them to something. You exhort them. The word exhort means to call them to something. Implied in that is you're doing something. So call them to do something you're doing. Or, and I'm sorry for the feedback. I'm not sure. how to, Do I need to move forward, Rusty? Or That way I'll be a tier 1A elder. You know, um, <laughs> call them to something. Number two, encourage them in something. The next word is encourage. It means to talk to them in a way that encourages them. Because it's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to follow God. It's hard to be what you should be. And then thirdly, share with them something. The last word is to bear witness. So there's a personal quality. It's not just data that you transmit. Like here's verses. But this is out of my life to your life in application of this truth, either for good or not good. Because sometimes sharing where Harry has fumbled the ball as a Christian can be as meaningful as Harry carrying the ball. And so that little outline of call them to something, encourage them in something, and then share something is a nice link. And what I would encourage you to do is to affirm their leadership before you call them to more leadership. Um, and then secondly, if, if, it's, if Karen's trying to get me to do something, then it's an appeal. Hey, I love it when you lead me, and I would really be encouraged if you would lead us. Just call us to the table. I mean, men lead. Fathers lead. And we're in an emasculated culture. Guys aren't allowed to lead in anything. That's not biblical. And so lead. And as a wife, or even as a son or daughter, appeal. You know, younger men to older men, you know, they appeal. Say, hey, Dad, love it if you would open the Bible, read a few verses, let's talk about it, and pray together. It means a lot to me. And if I'm a wife, I'm saying that to my husband. Hey, this would mean a lot to me. You're a good leader. I'd like you to lead in this way. So I would appeal. Do you have any thoughts to add to that? Well, I, I really appreciate the emphasis on affirmation rather than criticism. I think, you know, coming out of the marriage conference, some of the questions that we received not only had to do with things like family worship and spiritual leadership, but just what if my spouse isn't doing what I want them to do kind of questions. And that fits a lot of categories. And certainly when it comes to encouraging changes in behavior, affirmation goes so far. And what I mean by that is rather than nagging or criticizing or critiquing or pointing out all of the flaws, instead you encourage by affirming areas where you see growth and encouraging your spouse to continue doing those things because, wow, this is so amazing when you do this or you do that. There's actually a book that was published a number of years ago. I think it's called Practicing Affirmation something like that. It's all about how encourage change in others by affirming the good things that you see. And it's an amazing principle, both for how to love your spouse and also how to parent your kids. Um, you've probably experienced that as a parent when you 
respond to your kids in a negative and harsh way, the response from them is usually negative. (laughs) But when you encourage them and say, hey, I see this in you and I affirm this, you're doing really good, then they actually want to continue to do what's right. So from the wife to the husband, if you can be affirming in that, that goes a long way. And then maybe just an example as well of in Scripture, as a wife, I do think you can supplement your husband's leadership in this area. I think of Timothy, who was trained as a child from his youth, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And we know from earlier in 2 Timothy that it was his grandmother and his mother who were key influences in that. So I do think there is a place, certainly, for mom to have also a supplemental influence in the home. Well, thank you, man. That was very helpful. It's surprising how many questions we had concerning the essential church and the comment that that you just made, Harry. One of them reads, and I think it's sort of a summary of everything here. What is the greatest threat to the church family today? External or internal or either or? Well, I think the internal threat is a loss of, and I used it, said this earlier, is authority. The Bible is the word of God. It's true. And Jesus is the Lord of everything. And so that means I need to live like that. So Jesus has ultimate authority in heaven and earth. He's the head of the church, but he's over everything. And if I'm a Christian, I submit to that authority. And he has revealed his will in his word, which is reliable, trustworthy, and has authority over me. So Jesus is Lord, the Bible's true, and they have authority over me. And I just think what happens is we have this kind of egalitarian, I'm an American, I'm a Christian, I'll decide for myself, I'll, it's my truth, you know, all the stuff in our culture. So you, I could argue that that's the greatest threat, the loss of authority. And I'm not talking about abuse of authority. I'm talking about rightful, regal, um, lordship authority. And I think that's the biggest threat is the abandonment of submission to the word of God and the Lord of the church and the Lord of everything. And uh, so I think that's the threat both inside and out because everybody's got an opinion about what's right, you know, what love looks like. And you just have going to have to follow. And I think that's the way that we're going to go forward. Yeah, I'd add to that. Um, when the authority is established, then uh, I think the next greatest threat would be the issue of unity in the church. And you might open your Bibles. I've been meditating uh, on Ephesians 4 uh, for a variety of reasons. And it's one thing to just talk about unity. Like, that's nice. That's a great standard to have in relationship, both in your home and your marriage, uh, also in the family of God and the church. But if you look at Ephesians 4, and just kind of read along with me, um, Paul says, you know, as a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And the idea of worthy there is to walk consistent with uh, who God is and what he's called you to do. 
And then he says what? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then notice if you jump down to verse 11, he says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. A lot of times we look at Ephesians 4 and verse 11 and say, oh, yeah, he's appointed some apostles and pastors and teachers and so forth. But understand the context of what he's saying. Your job is to lead, to instruct, to disciple, and to shepherd the flock of God so that they can walk in a manner that's worthy of, his call, uh, of their calling. And the calling he points to is the calling to be one with Christ, to be one with God. And this is a unity is that we actually, as a church, work through all of our conflicts, all of our challenges, all of our disappointments, all of our sins, all of our failures. And we do that to be unified in the truth, the faith. That's what governs our thinking so that we can be living examples of God himself. God dwells in perfect unity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So when there's disunity in the family of God, we are marring the image of God, the picture of God to a lost world. And we talk about the essential church was not the greatest challenge for us. Once the issue of authority was, was wrestled with, contending with unity. There isn't a person in the room who didn't have a difference of opinion with family members, uh, other church members, and so forth. And we had to actually learn to practice this. Uh, this is where I would say most of our shepherding energies went was to help people know how to put Ephesians 4 into practice as elders and pastors and, and teachers. And so what's at stake isn't just your happy Christian experience. What's at stake is the glory of God or the testimony of the church. And so why are we called to be peacemakers? Why are we called to pursue and resolve conflict? It's not just for you personally. It's so that we might walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling of God. And so... Uh, the church had to establish who's the authority in recent years, and then we had to contend with how do we demonstrate a spirit of unity as we work through our differences in that. And so, um, to me, that's a really important threat internally um, in response to an external threat. I'd like to add one more thing. Um, purity is a big deal. You talk about threat, the, the toxin of pornography united with the laxness in sanctification and holiness. In other words, what does a Christian do? Or how does a Christian behave as it relates to their personal moral integrity and purity? And I do think we're getting eaten up from the inside out. People like me fumble the ball morally, default, lose credibility because of a lack of personal purity. That is anything but pure. And the rapids in our culture are like at Yosemite today, you know, where the water's so swift, you get in that water, nobody's going to bet on your ability to survive that torrent. And that's our culture. And so 
fighting for your own integrity. And that sanctification is a product of walking. It's, it's what happens. It's God who's the purifier. God who begins the work and continues to work it. It's not me muscling up. It's me walking in the spirit. It's me meeting with God and allowing and obeying and allowing the spirit of God to purify walk in accountability, make good choices, support one another because the battle is real inside and the power and the pressure and the current is swift on the outside. You're going to get swept away. And uh, I think that's another big threat inside and out. Yeah, and I think it, I think it comes down to actually submitting ourselves to the authority that we profess. So we say Christ is the head of the church, and we say Christ is the head of our lives. But what does that look like to actually live that out and be submitted to him so that what we do as a church and what we do as Christians is to glorify him? So we are part of a post-enlightenment Western culture that has elevated self Self-interest, self-gratification, self-pleasure, self-independence above all else. Uh, some of you have read Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And when self is put first, unity is lost. When self is put first, self-gratification trumps holiness and purity. When Christ is put first, we are unified in our pursuit of him. When Christ is put first, we put to death the sins of the flesh. So it's about living out the practical implications of the authority that we all profess as a common confession. I think we have one more question concerning the marriage conference, and I believe we answered most of the questions from there, and then after we're going to change to real current issues. This question reads, how can a couple compromise with spending? So this is a very real life application question. How can a couple compromise with spending time with the in-laws when it comes to holidays? For example, I really don't want to spend Mother's Day or Christmas with my in-laws. Is it wrong? <laughs> I, I did say it was a real life application. So the question reads, is it wrong for the wife, and I'll add for the husband, to want to create their own traditions and experiences for their family? When I do premarital counseling, which I just did for, by the way, this father has spent the most money to add family members because his daughter just got married on Friday. So he grew his family. But when I do premarital counseling, and if you were at the marriage conference, you would have heard me say this. When it says, for this cause, the cause of solving the aloneness problem, which God said was not good for the man, the man needs to take that girl, and he needs to leave his father and mother. And so they, together, new family unit, leave. And that word's a strong one. It means to abandon and forsake. It doesn't mean to dishonor. It means to disconnect in a way that establishes a new entity. So it's not a hard thing. It can be hard. It can feel bad. It's really right 
to establish your own home, your own traditions, your own family. Yes, you're a part of a larger community, but you have your own unit. So when I do premarital counseling, I raise this very issue. What's going to happen when somebody's mother says, you are coming home for Christmas, right? We always come home for Christmas. You're not going to ruin our family holiday, are you? And, you know, and the reason you're laughing is because you're living that reality or you've been that mother. But... I didn't mean that ugly. I'm just trying to... That's why I'm a tier two elder. (laughs) But I I would encourage couples early on. There are things like that in every family culture. And I encourage the wife or the husband to decide in the very first year, you're going to do one of the things, you're going to take one of those things and you do something to achieve because of the emotional bonds and expectations. So when, you know, you say, do you now leave father and mother, establish your own home? That's hard to do. So pick something and go do it. And tell them ahead of time, don't wait till the week before because you don't want to endure what it's going to take. And you just say, hey, we're, we're going to Yosemite or we're going to wherever and we're just going to spend our first Thanksgiving together. Oh, you're not going to be there? No, we're not going to make this one because we really want to establish this opportunity. And then the second thing I would say, and and who else that's hard for? The couple. Because if it's my mother saying, Harry, we want you and Karen there, it's hard on me. And there's an emotional weaning that has to happen in me too. And so going and establishing a new thing is good for the parents and it's good for the new couple. And then the final thing I would say, just by way of practical coaching, and if it's my mother that's the person inviting and most disappointed, then I deal with my mother, not my spouse. And if it's her mother, she deals with her mother, because her mother's always going to love Karen. She may not always love Harry. (laughs) And so pick the person that's going to carry the weight of that decision, I might be the husband who communicates it and say, listen, hey, we're sorry we're going to miss Thanksgiving, but we're X, Y, Z. But the the person that has to carry that, if it's Karen's mom, is Karen. And that'll help preserve what you want to preserve. You honor parents, but you have to leave so you can cleave. That's how I'd answer that question. Well, yeah, absolutely. And we also deal with that in premarital counseling, that exact scenario, try to get ahead of it because it shows up immediately. Um, actually shows up at the wedding. Um, as far as mom's expectations and in-law issues and all the rest of it. So the thing that I just want to emphasize that he's saying is you might have to do some teaching and instruction in advance as to what your biblical convictions are and help them understand the beauty of that and establishing a home and why that is God's order. Many of you have unbelieving parents, and that's really difficult. Many of you have single, come from single-parent households. That's really difficult because it feels like you're abandoning your mom or your dad in that case. And, um, and so it requires real wisdom, but it also requires just you know, a loving sharing of conviction outside of the immediate context of that. So you can prepare them by way of the expectation. The other thing I would say is I know many of you come from cultural backgrounds 
uh, in certain cultures, maybe a Hispanic background or an Asian background, there's, there's enhanced expectations about the extended family and holidays. And, um, you know, maybe in, in some cultures where, you know, it's the, the parents and the grandparents, and sometimes you're living all together. Um, so you have to bring it back to Scripture principles and speak about in terms of the beauty for the family. It doesn't mean that you're neglecting or abandoning. Uh, I know we're going through a period of time, uh, and we're glad to do it, caring for our elderly parents. That's the other side. Don't just make it about holidays. Think about your total responsibility of pursuing and caring for your parents. If they feel loved by you, you know, throughout the year, it makes that holiday or event not as exaggerated in their thinking. Like, that's the only time they're going to see you, and you just ruined whatever the event was. Um, And so you might have to put a little bit of extra effort into that. And then I would just emphasize, don't be that in-law. You know the Bible. And have that conversation with your kids when, when they get married and say, we want you to know that we want you to establish your home, and we're not going to put those pressures on you. You're always welcome. We'd love to have you. Hope you hopefully, we see you again. You don't just leave, and we never hear from you again. Um, but those are just some practical things to, to work through as well. Thank Amen. You. <laughs> so this question is work-related when Christians are confronted with a secular worldview. And it reads, for those who work in a secular medical field or in scholastics, and they're asked to perform abortions, or they're asked to respond to students or even patients with gender dysphoria who insist that they are called by preferred gender name and pronouns, And if there is a serious potential for termination of employment and legal ramifications for obstruction of healthcare, right of the patient or the student, and of discrimination, how would you shepherd them through this issue? Well, I understand that because it involves livelihood, compensation, my career, that that question's not an easy question to live out. But it's not really a hard question to answer. So I, I want to give the answer that I believe is the right answer because it's a biblical answer. But I want to say at the outset, I recognize that when there's so much attached to the consequence of doing what's right, that there it does require courage, and that courage has to be grounded in biblical conviction. But as a Christian, if I'm submitted to the authority of Christ and his word, I cannot do something that violates what scripture says. I cannot do something that violates my conscience as a Christian, and I cannot participate in enabling someone else's sin. So that's the principle. That's the conviction. Living that out can be hard, but we pray for God's grace to do what's right, even when the consequences seem high, because we must obey God rather than men. So, and you have Daniel's appeal, you know, an early, early portion of the book of Daniel, 
he appeals to his authority to address the issue, I don't want to eat the king's food. And so I think there's, by way of practical, I mean, wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, but I think you can also take measures to appeal to authorities and ask God for favor with those authorities because clearly Daniel was granted that opportunity. Um, and that person allowed him the freedom to not eat and be evaluated days later. Um, I think prudence and wisdom, graciousness, um, but I couldn't agree more with the principles and the simplicity of that as hard as it is it to, to be lived out. You're to be a picture of purity. We talked about salt like a lot. Um, you, can't, you can't contaminate. If it loses its savor, it has no value. It's just accommodated everything in the spirit of not creating tolerance or whatever. Um, and I think we have to be cautious and careful and convinced that we have a role to play. And if we don't play it, nobody's going to. And that's what's happened to our culture. Nobody stands up courageously. I think you should be gracious, but you must be courageous. And if you're not locked down ahead of time in those convictions, and I appreciate the question, because this is what you should be doing. What if? Because it's more likely the when, it'll happen. Now what am I going to do? Well, lock that down now. How I'm going to do it and what I'm going to do. And make provisions and plans accordingly. Absolutely. I agree with these guys. Of course, I would um, suggest to you, whatever your field is, if it's healthcare, journalism, if it's uh, the field of business, whatever it is, have you done your own work to think through the lens of what a biblical worldview on my field is? A lot of you were educated at public and state universities. You never had a Christian professor talk through those biblical issues. You know, we don't necessarily focus on that every time in our preaching ministry from the pulpit by way of application. There's some tremendous resources available to you at the Master's University, for instance. They've just created a, a biblical worldview a media platform to begin to interview and begin to address issues like this. They're uh, reissuing the Think Biblically book that has a chapter on most of the major fields that some of us find ourselves in. But um, when I teach students about this issue of uh, vocation, calling, and worldview, I challenge them to think through what are the biblical ethics in your field. Think it through. Be able to defend that biblically. At the same time, you're developing discernment to say what's not biblical in my world. And I think the radical change we're seeing in our society is a lot of the Judeo-Christian values and ethics that once were in place... Uh, and, and really, I would argue, we're in place in almost every major industry. That's what's been um, compromised. It's been gutted. And, and you're watching the trickle-down effect in every industry. And so the church in America has not had to work as hard to think biblically about their field. You're being forced to do that today. But just understand, you're not alone. So the first step is, is work through what are the biblical issues and decide then once you have the truth anchored, your convictions, okay, when the challenge comes, how will I respond? Make that decision first, okay? Don't wait until you're wrestling with, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose all these opportunities? It's going to be more difficult for you if you don't have that established. Second thing I would say practically, this Grace Church is a wonderful church. It's are filled with people from like vocations. 
And over the years, I've enjoyed being with a group of healthcare professionals or attorneys uh, or whoever it might be in this church. And I listen to the conversation because they're all facing the same thing. Practical things you could do, and we love to help you as elders, is get connected with other professionals in your field so you can pray for one another. You can support one another. Uh, young people, let me say to you, there's older people who've been in your career for 20, 25 years. They know what it's like to stand for Christ in their field and even are watching as things erode. They're great disciplers to you. Find somebody who's older. Say, what is in store for me? How did you navigate those waters? How did you think about that when those assaults came? And so this church is rich in assets, uh, and the ministries are rich in, in tools to help you do that, and, and they're more critical, I would say, today than at any point, at least in American history. So we're not alone. We have the church. One of the questions which, and I think the family issues question always keeps coming up, and this is someone earnestly trying to figure out how to deal graciously. What is the most Christ-like and loving way to respond, interact with a family member who claims to be a believer yet share, and shares God, yet has been receiving visions, dreams, and witnesses of God's mirac miraculous healing, revivals at church, and speaking in tongues? And this is the question. And I love the way he, he, he answers his own question, but the way he asks it, do we just nod our head and keep silent, or do we question it and try to point them back to Scripture even when there will be continued resistance? Yeah, I think you always try and point them back to Scripture. You do it graciously, and you do it patiently. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, that the Lord's bondservant is not quarrelsome, that he seeks to engage others with patience, and he prays that the Lord would grant repentance, which is a change of mind. And how does the Lord convince people, how does God convince people of the truth? He does it through his word, through the power of his spirit. The Holy Spirit takes the truth of his word, and God then uses that in the heart to change the heart and to change the mind. So it's not about you engaging in arguments where you think your logical case beats their logical case. It's about bringing everything back to the scriptures. And generally in those conversations, I think if you can ask questions, it's a great way to engage the other side by simply asking, oh, well, where in scripture do you see that? Or how from the Bible do you think about this? Or, you know, I was reading this text. How does this text relate to what you're saying? Uh, texts about the sufficiency of Scripture or the authority of Scripture and those kinds of things. So if you can take them back to the text patiently and using questions, you can start some great conversations that are actually profitable and don't just end in an argument. So I would uh, encourage you, I, I've used this before too is uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 16 through 21 deals with what trumps my experience even legitimate experiences and the reference Peter makes is we saw the majestic glory on the Mount of Transfiguration we heard the voice of God that wasn't a non-legit experience but there's a more sure word a more 
authoritative, trustworthy word. And it's not what I saw. It's not what I heard. It's what I've received. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And, and so housed in this response that Nathan gave is let's test it because experiences are like real. People have them. And uh, so it's an opportunity to try to address the truth from God's word, the more sure word, test the experience and measure that experience. Second thing is I wouldn't argue with somebody who doesn't want to, to ask questions. You know, what, what, what have you experienced? What causes you to believe that? Obviously, the enemy's a deceiver and, you know, miraculous things, you know, when, when the staff was thrown on the ground and turned into a serpent. Well, the bad guys did that too. And so the frogs, and it's not like the enemy doesn't have power to deceive or counterfeit. So experience, you know, you want to talk about experience with them in a way that kind of undermines the credibility or the authority of the experience. I think that, but I wouldn't argue. You know, if you, if you want to talk about that, you know, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm nervous when you say that, you know, that this happened. Um, but, I, you know, if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it biblically. If they don't, then I just, okay. I would nod my head and say whatever. And if somebody asked my opinion, I'd say I'm probably not where that guy is. Well, actually, I'm not where that guy is. So, anyway. Yeah, I think just to affirm that, Scripture talks about investing in teachable people. And what I'm looking for in my kids, what I'm looking for hopefully in me and my spouse with students in a case like this, even evangelistically, do you have a listening ear? Um, and sometimes we get caught up in the argument and, and it escalates the debate or, or the argument. And, and it can turn into, at least on their part, you think you might be defending the truth, but it might be provoking them in the flesh. And so pray for a listening ear. When there's a teachable spirit, you know the truth, you know, bring them to the truth. And um, God has to do that work in their heart as well. And that's why uh, sometimes we get, it requires real discernment, you know. We're not talking about compromise and not being bold. Always speak the truth. Do it in a loving way. Speak the truth in love. But also pray and look for a listening ear. And when you find that, that's a great teachable moment. How many more questions are on that? We, we've covered, what, five, six? We'll be bookmarked marked, and we'll keep and we'll come back to them. Okay. If there is what did you want? Well, Please all I wanted free. to say is for those of you that are frustrated that we didn't get to your question, I would like us to get to those questions. If you feel like this is helpful to you, then we want to be faithful to shepherd you in the ways that this might be helpful. Um, I just wanted to say, so we'll look at the what we didn't do and talk about when we will follow through. I, I just want I know it's time for us to head to the worship center, um, but I, I want to part with a Father's Day encouragement to the dads who are going to feel maybe I'm not the best. I mean, we're all wearing super dad, but the person who knows best that we're not super is the guy looking in the mirror. And so don't be discouraged. Take advantage of Father's Day to recalibrate and say, you know what? I've been a dad for 35 years. I want to be a better dad. And these are some of the things I want to adjust. Don't let the enemy 
bury you with the burden of past failure as if you can't change. Your future is ahead of you. Adjust. Every noble Christian dad is humbled by what we're not, and we're given on days like today an opportunity to receive gratitude because we're not a total failure typically. But we can say, you know what, I'm grateful for the encouragement and the affirmations, and I want you to know that as your dad, I want to do better. I want to do better in these ways. And I promise you that if you'll take that approach, it'll give you the opportunity to do that. That's good for everybody. And if you're the dad who fumbled bad, say, listen, you know what? These days remind me I could have done better, should have done better, and I'm really sorry that I failed in the ways I did. And I'm so grateful that you're honoring me today, and I just want you to know that I want to do better, and I'm sorry I haven't been better. Just own it and be humble in it and move forward with faith to pursue what you can be and, frankly, should be. Fathers are the most powerful people on the planet, not mothers. Mothers are influential, but every social study done will validate dads are the most important. We are not powerless. We just have to be dads. We have to be men, and we have to be Christian men. And if you'll do that, you'll be a difference maker. And if you forfeited your influence, you can get it back. You just got to start somewhere. Starting somewhere is saying, you know what? I want to do better, and I'm going to own what I wasn't. And I love the opportunity to move forward as a dad. So don't be discouraged if you've fumbled the ball, because some have and all of us have. So I want to encourage you that way. Can I lead us in prayer so we can head out? Father, thank you for the opportunity today that we share to worship God, to bear witness to the one who is worthy. And we do that in song, and we do that by the teachable spirit that we bring to your word today. And Lord, we're benefited, we're edified, we're encouraged, we're stimulated toward love and good deeds as we gather in this way. And so we're asking you to take the things that have been said today, and Lord, the issues that have been presented today, and Lord, seed those in our heart in a way that bears fruit into eternity. And Lord, we're grateful for your grace. We're glad that salvation isn't something, rescue is not something we earn or deserve. It is a free gift of immeasurable grace. And help us to receive that grace today and help us to dispense it. And help us to grow in a way that honors the one who paid so much to gift it. So we love you. We commit our day to you. We thank you for every dad. We thank you for every opportunity we have to bear witness to our Father who is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.